You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. We are in the second week of a nine-week series in Matthew's chap- Matthew chapters 11 through tw- uh, 13, a sermon series entitled, Are You the One? We saw last week, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. This week, we consider... Jesus, the one that we can trust in, the one that we can trust in. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 20. This is God's word. Then he, Jesus, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, now as we look at your word, we want to come to you and find your yoke easy and your burden and light. We want to come to you and find the rest that our souls need and crave. Lord, we've got much to learn here and much to see. I pray that your spirit inspired these words of scripture would bring them to bear on our lives and our hearts, our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions, our desires, and change us to make us more like Jesus. So please use your word now in our lives and in this church. I pray in his name. Amen. You know, sometimes you just want something to be true. Sometimes you just want something to be true. Kelly's sister lives over in Fenton, and on the road we take to get to her house, there's this very large, funny-looking house. It looks like a barn. It's huge. It's got kind of this 
gothic style to it. They've been working on it for years. And apparently my children have been having a debate about whether or not this is actually a castle. And it's big enough that it almost looks like it could be. So a while back, we were driving over there, and uh, as we approached it, the kids started talking about this house and whether or not it's a castle. And, and Evie was sitting right behind me, and, and uh, Evie said, Addie said it has to be a castle because she saw a queen coming out of it. I said, really? Addie's way in the back. I said, Addie, is that, is that right? Did you see a queen coming out of that house last time we went by? It was this long pause. And I hear from the back of the van, hey, that was a lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> sometimes, you just, sometimes you just really want something to be true. Of course, of course, sometimes you really just don't. Sometimes you really want something to not be true. I remember years ago, I was working in the summers building decks uh, with a friend of mine, and his dad was the, the guy who owned the company. And My friend had a girlfriend, and, and what he couldn't see, but all the rest of us could see, is that this wasn't going to work out. Things were happening, things were being done, things were being said, and, and it just was clear, this is, not, this is not going in a good direction. And we'd be out working on the job site, and he'd get a call, and he'd wander off for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes and on the phone trying to work something out. And his dad would say, oh, he just needs to cut her loose. He just needs to cut her loose. And we could all see it. He couldn't or didn't, didn't want to. Sometimes you just don't want something to be true. Sometimes you do. Well, we'd like to think that we're driven by facts, by evidence, by proof that we're cool, rational creatures that make our decisions based on gathering all the pertinent information, then applying logic and reason to come up with the, the best course of action. We'd like to think that that's how we operate. But if, if we have any self-awareness at all, we know that that's often not true. We are much more complicated than that. There's a lot more going on in our lives and minds and hearts than just the cold application of logic and reason and proof to every situation. What often drives us is not logic or wisdom, but simple desire. Often we're driven not by proof or logic, but by just what we want. Often what we say is, we believe is really just what we want. A number of years ago, um, the filmmaker Woody Allen was engulfed in scandal. You may remember, he left his longtime partner and took up romantically with her 18-year-old adopted daughter. Now, every part of wisdom and logic says, that's a terrible idea. That's a terrible idea. But that's not what Woody Allen said. He told Time Magazine, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things. And we may well criticize and look down upon that decision by him, but, and often we operate the same way. Our hearts want what they want. There's no logic to the decision. It's just what we want. Perhaps that's just how it goes in love. But what is it that drives our religious experience, our spiritual lives? 
What motivates and informs our spiritual lives? Are we driven by logic, reason, proof? Or are we supposed to give preference to our spiritual impulses and desires? When it comes to responding to Jesus, are we to be guided by what we think is true or by just what we want to be true? Well, here in Matthew 11, Jesus has been traveling around Galilee, teaching, healing, performing miracles. Many people have responded positively. They've been amazed by the authority of his teaching and the power of the signs and miracles that he performs. Many others have responded negatively. They're put off by his teaching. They're dismissive of his miracles. They, they all see the same things, but they respond very differently. Why? Here's the first thing. Proof isn't enough. If you're taking notes, that's point number one. Proof isn't enough. Evidence doesn't guarantee anything. Look back at verse 20. It says, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Well, it tells us something important about Jesus' ministry. The miracles were signs. People were supposed to see the miracles, and the miracles as a sign were supposed to point to something else, something crucial about who Jesus was and why he was there. Oh, we saw that last week in chapter, earlier in chapter 11. You remember John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus, says, are you the one that we've been looking for? And Jesus doesn't say yes or no. He just starts to say, tell them what you've seen. And he begins to recount miracles. Miracles associated in the Old Testament with the Messiah to come. In other words, you've seen the signs. Remind John of the signs you've seen. In other words, he's saying, that should be enough for John. The miracles point to who Jesus is and what he's done. But those miracles, those mighty works, were not enough for a lot of people. They heard the same teaching. They saw the same mighty works. And the conclusion they should have drawn about Jesus was, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is it. This is God's Messiah. This is the one who's going to bring in God's kingdom and restore and fix everything. That's what they should have thought. This is God's king. We need to turn from our sins, repent, and follow him. I mean, that was Jesus' message from the beginning, all the way back in chapter 4 when his ministry started. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message they should have heard and embraced. There was plenty of proof, but proof often isn't enough. Proof often isn't enough. Look, I, the message of Jesus, it really isn't any different today. Jesus is God's king. He proved that by dying and rising from the dead. We need to repent of our sins. We need to trust in Him. We need to submit to Him as Lord and King. There's plenty of proof, if that's what you think you need. If you need evidence, there's plenty. These cities saw His mighty works. We have even more. We have not only eyewitness testimony of His miracles, we have credible eyewitness testimony of Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. We have good reason to think that's true if you're looking for proof. His power and authority are well attested by the facts. But no amount of proof is enough if you don't want to believe. No amount of proof is enough 
if you don't want to believe, if you don't want him to be your king. I think that's just clear, right? What, what kind of evidence would you need to say, now I know it's true that Jesus died and rose from the dead? What would be the most powerful evidence that would convince you of that historical fact? Video? Would you believe it if you saw it on video? No, you wouldn't. Not if you don't want to. We'd find a way to explain that away. There's fake videos out there all over the place. Even video wouldn't be enough. What kind of proof do you need? There is no proof good enough if you don't want to believe. Which means that the thing that matters most to you is not proof. The most important thing for you is whether you want to or not. Jesus sees the same attitude in the cities he ministers in, and he denounces them. Woe to you. Woe to you. Look at verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are smaller towns around the Sea of Galilee, towns Jesus had traveled through, taught in, ministered in, performed miracles in. He says, woe to you. If, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, and Tyre and Sidon are two cities close together, powerful and important cities throughout the Old Testament world. They were pagan cities. They were not cities of Israel. They're up on the coast along the Mediterranean, north of where Israel is. They were enemies of God's people. They were pagan. They were judged and punished. You can read about it in Old Testament prophecies, how God says, I'm going to punish them, condemn them. Jesus says, if, if the people in Tyre and Sidon, who I judged for their wickedness, if they had seen the evidence that you'd seen, they would have repented. Those pagan Gentiles, if they'd have seen what you'd seen, Bethsaida and Chorazin, they would have repented. You had all the proof you needed. Proof isn't enough. He goes on. Verse 22. He says, I'll tell you, it'll be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Verse 23, and you, Capernaum, Capernaum's the major city in the region. Jesus spent a lot of time in and around Capernaum. He says, will you be exalted to heaven? Is blessing your fate, Capernaum, because of how you've responded to Jesus, God's king? He says, no, you will be brought down to Hades. Judgment is what your future looks like, Capernaum. He says, this is even worse than the first. He says, if, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom. Sodom, you remember Sodom from Genesis 19? Sodom is a byword for wickedness. It's difficult to imagine a place depicted as more evil in the Old Testament than Sodom. It's destroyed by God from heaven by fire and brimstone. Unbelievably evil. Jesus says, you know, those people in Sodom, if they'd seen the mighty works you saw, Capernaum, it'd still be there. It's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. 
that day comes that we stand before God. And over here is Capernaum, all these good Jewish people, right? We're following God. They're over here. They stand before God. Over here is the, the men and women of Sodom, judged by fire and brimstone. Jesus says it would be better to be with these people than with you. If they saw what you saw, they'd have believed. But the truth is, proof isn't enough. Proof isn't enough. Eternal blessedness versus eternal suffering is what at stake, but proof's not enough if you don't want to believe. Look, if, if we're rejecting Jesus, if we're, if we're not fully submitting to him, the problem isn't with him. He doesn't owe us more information. He doesn't owe us more proof that we should do so. The problem isn't here. The problem is with us. And the problem is actually worse than we might think. Because here's the second thing. The first one, proof isn't enough. Second, faith isn't easy. Faith isn't easy. You don't turn it off like flipping a switch or turn it on. Faith isn't easy. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You've hidden these things from the wise. Revealed them to children. We need to let the weight of that sit on us for a minute. It's startling and sobering. It's startling because we don't normally think that's how it works. It's not what we would expect, probably not how we would do it. And it's sobering because it forces us to take a close look at our own hearts. Are you among the wise and understanding as Jesus means it here? Or are you a little child? Jesus thanks or, or praises, we might say, his father for hiding the truth about Jesus from some people and revealing the truth about him to others. See, nobody sees Jesus and the good news of his kingdom as good and worthy of following on their own. Nobody comes to faith in Jesus by the application of their own wisdom, their own insight, their own logical powers and faculty of reason. No one comes to faith in Jesus because they're just smart enough to figure it out. Smarter than those who don't. Here's why. Nobody's a moral free agent. Nobody's a moral free agent. Keep your marker here and turn over for just a minute to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. Look at verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, And even if our gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, crucified and risen again for sinners like me and you, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. Now listen, that is everybody at some point in their life. No one's born with their spiritual eyes wide open. All of us at some point are blinded by the God of this age so that we can't see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, he goes on, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the default status of our sinful hearts is spiritually blind, unable to see Jesus, unwilling to see Jesus as glorious and beautiful and worthy of trusting and submitting and giving our lives to. That's the default status. You can't fix that. You can't look harder or think harder or believe harder. Blind is blind, veiled is veiled. What's needed is a miracle. What we need is for God to say, let there be light in our souls so that we can see Jesus. We can see spiritual realities as they really are. In other words, what's needed is grace. Grace is what we need. What Jesus is saying here, exalting it really, is that God does that for some people. He's not obligated to do it for anybody. It doesn't have to, open, have to open anybody's eyes. Our spiritual blindness is our own fault. Faith isn't easy. In fact, it's humanly impossible. It's only grace that enables anyone to believe in and follow Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Faith isn't easy. It is a gracious gift of God. So, so Jesus says back here in Matthew 11, he says there's a kind of person God doesn't show Jesus to and a kind that he does. God hides it. He conceals it from the wise and understanding. Why? Well, Jesus isn't anti-wisdom. Wisdom is an important virtue in the Bible. The book of Proverbs tells us over and over again to get wisdom. It's not that Jesus doesn't like wisdom and wants us to be fools. Jesus certainly isn't advocating stupidity and ignorance. He isn't condemning either a, a sincere seeker who's, who's looking into the truth about Jesus in the Bible, evaluating the evidence for the resurrection, for instance. He's not condemning a sincere seeker who's trying to think through what God in his word says. Here's the kind of person that spiritual truth is hidden from. The proud person who's wise in their own eyes, who sets themselves up as judge and arbiter of Jesus and spiritual truth, who says in their hearts, well, I'll believe and follow you if you meet my expectations and my criteria. Oh, I'll believe and follow you if you meet my standards of wisdom and understanding, oh, Jesus, I'll believe and follow you if I, if I want to, but I'll decide. The kind of person God delights to reveal Jesus to, he says, is little children. Little children. The kind of person who believes what the Father says 
because he's the father. Children are inclined to trust what their father tells them. I've told my children ridiculous things and had them believe me. Their default is, I could trust my dad, although that may be changing. Children can trust their fathers. Notice here, verse 25 to 27, but look especially in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. There is Father and Son language all over this section. And it's not all over Matthew, but it's all over this section. Because children trust their fathers. And fathers look out for their children and do what's best for them. The proud say, I trust in me. My insights, my wisdom, my judgment. And God says, fine, let's see how that works out for you. The humble children say, I trust my father, his wisdom, his insight, his judgment. And God says, let me show you my son. James 4, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Faith isn't easy. You don't flip it on and off like a switch. It's humanly impossible. It is a divine miracle. And the people who receive that miracle are the humble, the childlike, who believe it because their good father told them. What's your heart like? Do you know? Suspicious? Proud? Demanding? Wise in your own eyes? Do you come to God and his word with a prove it attitude? Or do you come humble, hopeful, trusting? See, the object of our faith isn't ultimately an idea. What we're ultimately resting in is not a theology. Our hope is not set on a religion, but on a person. Number, point number three. The promise is personal. The promise is personal. We saw in the first place that proof isn't enough. We saw, secondly, faith isn't easy. Now, the promise is personal. Jesus says in verse 28, come to who? Me. Come to me. Not just to his team. Not just to an idea. Jesus says, come to me. Who does he call? All. All who labor and are heavy laden. If you're hearing my voice and you labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says, come to me. The promise is personal. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. All those who are overworked and wore down and burdened by anxiety, by suffering or pain, 
by exhaustion. In this context, also probably by religion. All the religious leaders are wearing them down with the demands and burdens of the law. Jesus says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. He's not a recruiter. He's not out there. I just read an article yesterday about that the University of Kentucky signed the 22nd ranked player in the country to play for them next year, basketball. And I'm like, well, I wonder where he's from. And I read the article. He's from Waterford Mott, just down the road here. Who's Kentucky looking for? All blue chippers there. All five-star recruits. We want the best of the best. Jesus isn't a recruiter. He's not out saying, I got to get me the best and the brightest. Make my church look good. Jesus says, you tired? You worn down? Are you exhausted? Do you have lots of needs? Come to me. You're exactly the kind of person I'm looking for. You're exactly the kind of person I'm looking for. You need help? You need rest? Come to me. The promise is personal. Jesus isn't calling us to an idea or a philosophy or a theology or religion. He's calling us to himself. Why would we come to him? First of all, his character the kind of Savior that He is. Look at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am, what does it say? Gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. Coming to Jesus, it doesn't feel like going to a drill sergeant. It doesn't feel like coming to a high-demand, high-power boss who says, perform or else. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. When we accept his invitation, we find him to be humble, approachable, accessible, gentle, earnest, interested, Imagine the best conceivable father with his young child. He's tender, cradling him in his arms. He's caring. He's attentive. He's gentle. I remember after one of our children were born, saying to Kelly, we're in the hospital, it's only been 10, 20 minutes, and we're holding this little baby that we've never seen before. And I said, it's an amazing thing, really. This little child who we we've, we've first saw 10 minutes ago now has the power to break our hearts. God holds his children and his people with that same, even greater tenderness, gentleness, and care. Why would we come to him? That's the kind of Savior he is. That's what his character is like. No one, no one truly comes to Jesus and is disappointed. No one finds him to be, well, less than I'd hoped. We would come to him because he's just that kind of Savior. Secondly, we would come to him, first of all, for his character, but secondly, because of his intentions, the life that he offers and holds out to us. He says at the end of verse 29, you will find Rest for your souls. That's what we need. 
That's what we need. Rest for our souls. We need that in, in our everyday experience of life, but even more than that, that idea of rest in the Bible is tied up all the way back in the Old Testament where God's people are brought out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, brought to the promised land where they're going to be given rest. And of course, they fail in keeping covenant with God. They're driven out of the land. They come back by Jesus' day. They're back in the land, but it doesn't feel like rest. They're oppressed by foreign powers. And as we saw in Hebrews several weeks ago, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So God is inviting them. Jesus is inviting them, inviting us into his rest. The rest, the future, the hope that you crave, Jesus says, is with me. You come to me with your weariness, with your burdens, with your anxieties and fears and struggles, I will give you rest. We trust his heart. We trust his intentions. Jesus is calling us. He's inviting us to himself. See, here's the big idea this morning. When it comes to following Jesus, what we really need is not proof, but a promise, a personal promise. What we really need when it comes to following Jesus is not proof, but a promise. The promise is personal. Jesus is calling us to himself and to the life that he holds out to the humble who will come to him. But the promise is personal also means that rejecting the invitation is personal too. Rejecting the invitation is personal too. Jesus' invitation has moral implications. If you're walking through the mall, and they've got those kiosks in the middle, and you're walking by and someone's trying to force on you a perfume sample or something else. If you own a mall kiosk, I apologize for the negative light I'm painting them in, but you take it or leave it. There's no moral implications. If I don't want a perfume sample, I don't need to take one. But Jesus' invitation has moral implications. It's a personal promise. Rejecting it is personal. Rejecting the invitation is to reject him. We need to come to Jesus. We need to accept his invitation. How do we do this? How do we accept the invitation and embrace the promise? He says in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. That word for learn comes from the same root as the word disciple. A disciple is a learner, someone who is learning Christ, learning about them, sure, learning knowledge and facts, but more than that, learning in relationship. Learning in relationship. I'm not just learning truths about that person. I am learning that person. I am getting to know them, who they are, what they're about, what's important. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The Jewish teachers of the day would talk about putting on the yoke of the law. Like, strap it on. That's our burden. That's what we got to carry. We got to do what the law says. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. My yoke is easy. He says, my burden is light. He's calling him, you leave your old way of life and come and follow me. That's what he calls us to do as well. Some of you need to do that this morning for the very first time. You've been walking your own way, wearing some other yoke, following some other path. And today, 
you need to repent, believe, and submit. Today, you need a new path. Maybe you say, I need more proof. Fine. Keep investigating. Keep asking questions. Take up the Gospels, especially. Take up Matthew's Gospel and read. But maybe, maybe when you say, I need more proof, what's really happening in your heart is, I just don't want to. I just don't want to. You need to ask God. And I'm going to ask God in just a moment to soften your heart and open your eyes. Because maybe what you say is, I need more proof, is actually just, I don't want to. We need our eyes opened and our hearts softened to receive from God what really truly is good. About a month ago, Ian, our three-year-old son, had strep throat. And for the first day or two, he just fought and refused to take his antibiotic. Like, buddy, you got to take this. I don't want to. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> you want to be sick? This can get bad, right? This could be life-threatening. This could seriously mess you up. Don't be an idiot. I'm offering you medicine. I don't want the medicine. It's yuck. It's, it doesn't, even if it is yuck, it doesn't matter. This is what you need. Just needs to trust his parents. How tragic that he could get seriously sick, even die, because he refused the medicine that would heal him because he thought it wouldn't taste good. I don't want it. How tragic it is that many people refuse Jesus' sincere, generous, life-giving invitation because they're unsure if they'll like him if they do. How tragic. Faith isn't easy. Don't put it off. It's not like flipping a switch. Don't say, I'll just, I can do that later. I'll do it anytime. Today you hear Jesus' invitation. Embrace it today. Come to him. Many of us have done that. But we need to hear Jesus' invitation again. We've turned to him before. We've trusted him. We're, we're trying to follow him, but, but when we get distracted, we get off course, we turn in other directions, and we hear other invitations that seem more promising, more immediately gratifying. And we start to veer off course and go in other directions. Many of us need to hear Jesus' invitation too. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Maybe this morning what you need to do is, is turn back, get back on course. Following Jesus, learning from him wholeheartedly, drowning out, casting aside the other invitations that come from every direction saying no this is the direction you need to go here's where you'll find happiness here's where you'll find fulfillment here's where you'll find joy and say no 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 I need to hear my Savior's invitation again come to me you are weary and heavy laden I will give you rest boy many of us probably most of us need to commit ourselves this morning to that learning Christ putting on his yoke saying that's where I need to go that's the invitation my good father offers me. I'm not going to be an idiot and pass that up. I'm not going to be an idiot and chase some other direction. I'm going to go hard after Christ. Father, I pray. We need much grace. Day by day, moment by moment, we need much grace. Lord, 
there are probably people here this morning who need to turn to you in a humble, childlike faith for the very first time. They need to confess their sins, put their trust in Jesus, accept his invitation. I pray they'd do that this morning. I pray they wouldn't let some notion of proof or some, some notion of I just don't want to stop them. But they would believe and embrace this invitation because you've opened their eyes and you're offering them the rest their heart and soul crave. I pray right now there might be someone here this morning who would turn to Jesus in wholehearted faith for the very first time. And Father, for those of us who already have, I, I pray a renewed commitment to accept Jesus' invitation every day. Father, I, I know my heart. I know how distracted I get. Distracted by troubles or pain. Distracted by disappointments or anxiety or fears. Distracted by desires or, or things that compete for giving Jesus the full attention that he deserves. And Father, I pray you turn my heart. And, and for all my brothers and sisters here, I pray the same you would turn us back toward Jesus, that we would hear his invitation afresh, that we would see him more clearly as gentle and lowly in heart, that we would long to come to him, that we would say, I'd be a fool to go anywhere else, but to give him my undivided trust, faith, and Father, indeed, submit our very lives to your good hand. Lord, I pray right now you'd be opening eyes, softening hearts, drawing us all back to your Son with a strong commitment, a strong faith, a strong delight in him that he would seem to us beautiful and glorious, the very wisdom and power of God. I pray that you'd do that in us, in this church, for your glory and our joy. I pray in Jesus' name.